Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Grace. A doctor was checking on a man's health, and after giving him a thorough examination, the doctor, with a rather serious look on his face, called the wife out of the room for a consultation. And the doctor said to the woman, now, you need to understand your husband is in really bad shape. So some drastic changes are going to have to be made or he's going to die. For instance, his diet has to change. For breakfast, none of this frosted flakes and fruit loops. I mean, he's got to have a hot, healthy breakfast or he's going to die. And for lunch, no sandwiches or fast food. I mean, it needs to be health food or he's going to die. And for dinner, I would suggest you make him like a square meal. I mean, something home cooked or he's going to die. And then, by the way, he can't do any more work around the house or he's going to die. So he can't clean the house. He can't wash the dishes. In fact, outside, he can't rake leaves or mow the yard or do any yard work at all or he's going to die. The wife thought for a moment and then walked back into the room where her husband was anxiously waiting. And her husband said, what did the doctor say? What did the doctor say? He said, you're going to die. <laughs> he said, you're going to die. You know, marriages are in real trouble today. And many people are just giving up on the institution of marriage and saying, it's just an archaic thing we need to get beyond. But I would suggest that before we give up on it, we, we maybe ought to look at what God has said about it and how it works best. I don't think any of us would take a job without first seeing a job description, without first knowing what the expectations are, for goodness sake. And yet, people go into marriage all the time without a lot of preparation. By the way, that's one of the reasons at Grace we make a big deal out of weddings. We, we want to do at least our part before we agree to officiate a wedding to make sure that this couple is as prepared as they can be. Now, let me just make one disclaimer before we dive into today's brief passage. I'm talking, I believe, primarily to folks who are followers of Jesus Christ, People who have decided, who have yielded their lives to the authority of God's word, and they're looking to get their lives in line with that as it is properly understood and interpreted. Now, listen, if that's not you, we're still glad you're listening. We're still glad you're here. But you need to know that some of the things I say today may sound a little strange to your ears. By the way, God often calls us to a countercultural lifestyle. And he often calls us to a life that is actually very sacrificial and, and challenging. And that's one of the reasons that people look at what the Christian life really is and what it means and what it involves. And they just say, no, thanks. That would require me to be too selfless. I, I, I'd rather not do that right now. But you know what? I think we ought to at least be curious about what God says, because can we be blunt about it? Culture's not doing real well with marriage right now. And the statistics are astounding. Generally speaking, one out of two, every two marriages ends in failure. 
And so in these brief four verses, we're going to look at from the book of Colossians chapter three, we're going to try to get right to the heart of it. I wrote down about a dozen questions this week as I prepared for this that I don't even have time to explore today. We just don't have time. It would literally take hours for us to unpack all of the questions that get raised from these verses, all kinds of roads we could go down. But I'm going to try to avoid the, the rabbit trails, although they would be fun. And I'm going to try to stick to just the heart of what I believe, the essence of what I believe God is wanting us to get from this. So I invite you to go on the journey with me. First of all, I think he says a word here to wives and husbands, and that starts in verse 18. Verse 18 here says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So let me start by saying some things, since this is so misunderstood, and since we have a culture that I believe is increasingly getting away from the centrality of Scripture, let me say some things that I believe this does not mean. Number one, the husband is not a dictator. One man boasted that he was ahead of his house. He said, my wife came crawling to me on her hands and knees the other day. And a friend of his who knew him quite well was actually startled by that and said, really? She really came crawling to you on her hands and knees? Well, what did she say? She said, get out from under that bed and come out and fight like a man. <laughs> well, let's face it. Some husbands have gotten a really bad message. And so they're running around in their homes like frustrated drill sergeants, running around with Bible in hand saying, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, I make all the decisions here. And nothing could be further from that kind of mentality. God's not looking for that. If they really were the leader, they certainly wouldn't need to be saying it all the time. And when they run around like that, the wife is sitting there saying, yeah, he may be the head, but I'm the neck that turns the head, you know. As one woman said to me, it doesn't matter who rules the roost, it's who rules the rooster that really counts, and that's me. And so this battle keeps being waged back and forth over who's in control. Listen, listen. As this passage and numerous other parallel passages make clear, husbands, husbands, listen now, are to be loving, sacrificial servants of their wives and families. If I could just stop right there and be certain that every husband got that, I would just quit talking right there. Loving, sacrificial servants of their wives and families. The word used here for love is not eros, so it's not talking about the sexual aspect of the relationship. It's not storge, so it's not talking about that sort of family obligation part, although that is there too. And it didn't even use the word phileo, this kind of brotherly love, which is very robust. No, it used that fourth word in Greek. The most important word for love, agape. 
The same kind of love that God had for us when he so loved the world that he gave. And through Jesus our Lord, he came and poured his life out as a sacrifice for us. So this is the most costly love of all. And I will tell you, when that is practiced in the home, the husband creates this loving environment where his family can really flourish. That is quite the opposite of a dictatorship, I will assure you. But second, the husband is not valued more by God. I hope everyone's hearing that. Husband is not valued more by God. Now, some of you may wonder, Pastor, why would you even need to say something that if anybody's read their Bible, it would be so obvious? Well, I say this because I've had a number of women through the years say to me, you know, the Bible just values men more than women. It's like God gives favoritism to men. I say, well, what, make, what makes you conclude that? And they'll say things like, well, most of the pronouns are masculine. Most of the key heroes in the Bible are men, after all. And, and all the biblical authors were, were males, not females. And so I've had some women just be bluntly honest and go, look, women got a raw deal. I mean, you know, we just got a raw deal. Let's face it. God gives favoritism to men over women. And my response is nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, oh yes, it is true that scripture was definitely written in a culture that was strongly patriarchal. There's no doubt about that. But if you read the story carefully, women show up quite prominently in God's salvation history. Many of the women, like Jochebed and Miriam and Ruth and Deborah and Abigail and Esther, are major players in God's story. And they're just as heroic as the men. In the New Testament, it's the same. Whether you're talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, whether you're talking about Elizabeth, the, the, the mother of John, the, the baptizer, whether you're talking about people like Lydia or Phoebe, who were prominent leaders in the early church, many, many others are key players in God's salvation history right along with the men. So, I would suggest to you that the complaint that God favors men over women just doesn't hold water. We also need to understand that the Bible teaches that when it comes to salvation now and our standing before God, it's like male and female doesn't even exist when it comes to that. Galatians 3.28 makes that quite clear. Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So today's passage that we're going to unpack brings a vast dignity to both men and women because it says men and women are spiritual and ontological equals with God. That is the consistent teaching of Scripture. But... We should not take the leap that many people take from that and assume that God is saying men and women are exactly the same. Surprise, they're not. 
God made them male and female, different. And so there are some functions, there are some proclivities, there are some, I'm going to use the word, roles in the home that are not purely interchangeable. And to distort that is to really frustrate the life in the home that God designed. Jesus Christ, and this is what Christianity is all about, Jesus Christ came on a rescue mission. I hope we all understand that. Because we had a problem we could not solve. We had a sin problem that we could never be able to conquer on our own. Jesus came on a rescue mission and died on the cross for our sins so we could be forgiven and be brought into a relationship with with God the Father. Jesus had a function didn't he? As co-equal with the Father, he had a function to perform on earth in his incarnation, in his mission here. And as I said, that was to die a sacrificial death, and he submitted himself to that plan. Question, question, question. Because Jesus submitted himself to that role, that plan, that function, does that mean he's inferior to God the Father? Now, if you answer yes to that, you just became a heretic. If you answer yes to that, with all due respect, that is blasphemy. And it's also erroneous to say that for a wife to be voluntarily submissive to her husband, cast her in some sort of inferior role. It does not. That is not at all what God intends. But the third thing I want to say is that the wife is not called to be in servile, menial bondage. Again, if you've read your Bible, if you understand the words used, the sacrifice God calls husbands to, you wouldn't even need to make such a statement. But unfortunately, things have been so caricatured over the last decades that biblical teaching has been thrown in the most negative light. And so, The idea in the popular culture is, oh yeah, women are supposed to be these menial servants in the home. They do all the nasty work, all the bad stuff, while the husband gets to sit on a throne and watch TV. Really? Where did you get that in the Bible? You did not get that in the Bible. The marriages I know that are working the best are where husbands and wives are actually trying to outserve each other. Hey, I'll vacuum this room. No, no, you've been working all day. You go rest or do something else you'd rather do. I'll, I'll take care of this. I'll wash these dishes. No, 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 no. You go lie down or something. You know, do something that's fun. Let me get these. And we keep on trying to outserve one another. So this passage, if it's not teaching that husband's a dictator, if it's not teaching that men are more valued than women, if it's not teaching the woman is to be in menial bondage, what in the world is it saying? I thought you'd never ask. Thank you for asking. Now, here's the heart of it. I hope you're tuned in right now. I believe this passage is teaching, properly understood, that marriage works best When husbands love their wives with a kind of sacrificial love 
that is kind and gentle, and wives have a voluntarily submissive, deferential respect for their husbands. Folks, you can take that to the bank. That never changes. It doesn't matter what the culture is. It doesn't matter how long the world goes on. Now, when we get into trying to apply that and come up with all kinds of weird applications, that's where we get in trouble. But that you can take to the bank. Now, let me speak to wives for just a minute. That submissive part there, wives, has to be voluntary. Let me explain that. The Greek language in which this was written and it's so fun to study Greek. If you ever get a chance, it really, it's like watching, it's like the difference between watching TV in black and white, the old black and white, or in color. You still get the message in black and white, right? But the color really brings it to life a lot more, I think. And so in Greek, you have something which is called the voice of a verb, the voice of it. And so you have things like active and passive and middle voices, okay? So, I can say, I help. That would be active. Or I could say, I am helped. That would be passive voice. If I say, I help myself, that is what is called in Greek, the middle voice. So it refers back to the subject in the sentence. I help who? I help myself, okay. Now, I know this is getting a bit technical, but I hope you can stay with me on this. Being in the middle voice in Greek is very significant. It means that this is not something that is imposed on a wife. It's not this harsh thing that's imposed. It's something that the wife makes a volitional choice about. It's not an imposed thing where the husband, now I got my rights. That will only lead to abuse of some of that kind of power. What God is looking for ideally is the sort of loving relationship with your husband where in response to kind, servant-hearted love, you willingly choose to submit yourself, but the responsibility is yours. And I would just say to you, because I care, because I care, if you're a single woman here today and you're a devout follower of Jesus Christ, you love the Lord with all your heart, and if you desire to be married to a guy someday, I would say to you, unless you honestly have that kind of respect for that guy where you can voluntarily make that choice, I would urge you not to marry that guy. Because it's just going to be chaotic. It's just going to be way more messy than it needs to be. It's a choice that you make. Tony Campolo is one of the most dynamic speakers I've ever heard. And he used to put it like this. It's a little bit crass, but here's what he said. What wife would have any difficulty submitting to a husband who thinks he's her slave? To a husband who is leading and serving her best interests, knowing that he has God's best for her in mind, and he's willing to lay his life down for that. And he knows that God's going to hold him stridently accountable for that. Or as Beth Moore, talking about this very issue, the popular 
Bible teacher said, wives, you want to know what submission is? Submission is just you ducking so God can hit your husband. That's all it is. So Paul, I think here, is saying in essence to wives, in the marriage relationship, you will choose to have this deferential respect, this submission in light of the love that your husband is going to be showing you. Now, you may ask, well, again, I told you there's, there's at least a dozen key questions I'd love to explore. We just don't have time. Is this just some weird teaching where it's the only place it shows up in the Bible? No, it it actually is a pretty common teaching. It shows up four times specifically. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then in Titus, older women are instructed to teach younger women to be subject to their own husbands that the word of God may not be dishonored. And then the apostle Peter also addresses this in 1 Peter chapter 3. So I'm just trying to show you this is not some little isolated weird, singular teaching where maybe the apostle was on drugs or something that day and just just messed up. This is really a significant teaching in Scripture. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, in other words, I think he's talking here about husbands who have no regard for the Lord yet, who are not followers yet. And that your very demeanor, your very attitude, your very behavior in the home, God is going to use it powerfully in their own salvation. Even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And then the fourth one, of course, is the one we're looking at today. But remember, each time in each one of those passages, It's talking about a voluntary response rather than a right that is enforced. Again, there's far more here than we can adequately explore. But let's quickly plow ahead and look at a couple more issues of this. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, what in the world does fitting in the Lord mean? I would say that anything that is illegal or immoral, anything that traumatizes or hurts the wife in any way, or anything that is not ultimately going to help her flourish is not fitting in the Lord. And then to husbands, Paul says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh, harsh with them. As we've already noted, the word for love there is the word agape, the most costly, sacrificial love of all. It's a love where we give ourselves up for our wives, just as Christ gave himself up for the church. It's a love that makes our wife feel protected and secure. Does your wife feel that way, sir? Protected and secure? because of your attitude, because of decisions, because of the way you've deferred to her on so many occasions, because of how gentle you are in your nurturing of her? Is that the way she feels? But I'm also struck by Paul's phrase here, this do not be harsh with them. I wonder what kind of harshness Paul's thinking about there. I've watched some marriages where I just cringed 
at the harsh tone of the husband and sometimes from the wife. I've seen marriages where there's just a gruffness about the husband where I just think in my mind, I don't blurt it out. I just think it must be hell to live with that guy. You say, well, does he, does he go to church? Is he a Christian? Yeah, but that doesn't mean he's gentle. You know, my theory is people basically kind of pattern whatever they saw in their life growing up. And if you saw that kind of harsh environment in your home growing up, you're probably, unless God intervenes, unless you deliberately choose to change that messaging in your life, you're probably just going to follow what you saw modeled. But kindness and gentleness create an environment of flourishing. Now, the truth is, I'm speaking right now to some husbands who are growing frustrated because of your wife's lack of interest in the bedroom. And your wife is sitting there right now saying, hello, I've been trying to tell you this. Here's the deal. You see, when you've been harsh with me in all kinds of ways, verbally and otherwise, I can't just flip a switch. I can't just flip a switch and suddenly be what you want me to be in the bedroom when your harsh words are still ringing in my ears. Husbands, I'm pleading with you. This is a message you need to get. Your wife wants you to take an interest in her life and her pursuits to be a sounding board. She wants to talk to you about all kinds of things and probably talk frequently. Yeah, that's fair to say. At least my wife does frequently to hear you call and say, hey, I was just thinking about you. I just want you to know I love you. To surprise her with a handwritten note, just telling her things that are wonderful about her, to encourage her regularly. She craves that kind of kindness from you. This won't shock any of the women in the room but I hope it shocks some men. Survey after survey after survey after survey. When women of all ages, all different walks of life, all different cultures and ethnicities have been asked, what is the number one aphrodisiac to you? What really turns you on about a man? The number one response, hands down, kindness. kindness. So husbands, what about it? When was the last time you looked in your wife's eyes with tenderness and told her how beautiful she is to you? When was the last time you wrote a note and listed some of the many things you appreciate about her? Kindness in words and deeds helps create an environment where intimacy can flourish. I believe I'm speaking to some people today, and you're hurting in your marriage, and you need help. Can I tell you, one of the greatest gifts you could give to your spouse today would be to kind of step out, make the move, and get some help. You need to understand you're not alone. God is helping many couples build stronger and healthier marriages through our marriage ministry here at Grace. So I invite you to sign up today 
and be a part of that. Get involved in a small group. Get involved in some of the studies and dialogues that go on. And I've actually met some people through the years who, Pastor, I, I don't want to do that. I feel like I'd be betraying my marriage if I did that. I feel like I'd be acknowledging that we're, we're just not doing well. Seeking help is a gift you're giving. And I wish some husbands would lead the way on this. In my experience, at least, it's not always this way, but in my experience, it's usually the wife that is a little more willing to just swallow her pride and go, we need help here. Husbands, I'd ask you to lead the way today. I challenge you to. And when you do, you'll be surprised to realize you're not alone. In fact, you're not even in the minority all marriages, all marriages can use some help from time to time. And just having a place to, to talk and to share your struggle can be a big part of the healing effect. So make it your goal. Make it your goal. Your marriage is going to be the most precious and nurturing space in the world for you. So before you get away from here today, Check with someone at the information center in the lobby. Check with one of our pastors. Go online. You're going to hear more about this at the end of the service today. But we've got to very quickly move on. I want to say now a quick word to fathers, to fathers. I'm going to skip down to verse 21. We'll come back to verse 20 in a minute. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. The two words that jump out to me are embitter and discouraged. Embitter simply means to arouse or engender bitter feelings and discourage. If you're encouraged, it means you're with courage. You have courage. But if you're discouraged, the courage or the confidence have been taken out of you. That's what it means to be discouraged. So Paul says to fathers, don't disillusion, don't discourage, don't disappoint your children so they lose hope. Now, I've seen lots of children embittered, and often it's from an absentee father. A father who either has abandoned his family, in some cases, or is just not there emotionally. His head is stuck in a ball game. He's caught up in his hobbies, playing golf, being gone all the time, whatever. And he's just not engaged with his family. It's easy to see, isn't it? How a child, over time, children are very resilient, I believe. But over time, any child is going to become a bit embittered about that. So let me say what I've said repeatedly through the years. I just want to take my hat off again today and acknowledge all of the single parents in our midst. I have the greatest, hear me, I have the greatest admiration and respect for some of you single parents in our midst who are doing this heroic job raising children on your own. And many of you have found yourselves as single parents through a winding path, but it's often not of your own choosing. And you're making the best of it, and you're asking for God's strength to parent your children so they'll grow up full of hope. So single parents, 
I salute you and I honor you. I honestly, honestly don't know of a tougher job than what you are trying to do. I salute all of our parents, single or not, because parenting is just not for cowards. But it seems to me that the goal of Christian parenting, and again, here is where we could camp out for an hour if we just had the time, but I'm running out of time quickly. It seems to me the goal of parenting ought to be to raise children that are full of hope, a hope, hear this now, that is anchored in the right object. That's the opposite of discouragement. If we don't want children who are embittered and discouraged, it seems the opposite of that is children filled with hope. Think about it. Where do we typically, in our culture, encourage our children to place their hope? I'd say that the subtle or overt message that comes through most homes in America, even Christian homes, is your hope is in a good education. Ooh, now that's the key to your future. Your hope is in physical beauty and being a knockout physically. That's going to give you all the advantages you need in life. Your hope is in professional success and career advancement. Your hope is in being connected to people with power and clout and position. So work that network, baby. Now, are you listening to me? There is absolutely nothing wrong with any of those things I named. Nothing wrong with being well-educated. Nothing wrong with being well-connected. Nothing wrong with being good-looking or any of that, unless that's where your hope lies. Then it's a problem, a big problem. So parents, dads, moms, What are you teaching your children to put their hope in? What are the objects of hope that you're instilling in their lives? If it's any of the things I named or any list of other things on this world, in this world, they are going to become disillusioned eventually. Paul said to Timothy this amazing statement, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, watch that, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Take away, don't put your hope in any secondary thing. Elizabeth Elliot said a lot of very wise things. She said, if a young person has been taught from childhood that he ought to be something, and isn't that what we all, all of us parents, now you got to be something, you got to be something, do something, be something with your life, be something in this world. If he's taught that he ought to be something without at the same time being shown that nothing is better than being God's servant, he may be preoccupied with ambitions and ideals he has gotten solely from the world. Very interesting. So the truth is, our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. God is the goal, and we want to teach our children to put their hope in God. Anything less is an idol, and you don't want to be raising a bunch of little idolaters in your house, do you? No. 
But if you're giving them a subtle message, hey, this is where your hope is, you may just be raising an idolater. You may just be teaching your kids to be idolaters. God is the goal. Are you teaching your children that? And the best way they get that message is to watch you. Because they will catch it more than learn it from your words. So as we close, at the speed of sound, I'm going to make a quick word here to children. A quick word to children. Paul says in verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, in Ephesians 6.1, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And so I think, because he's writing to Christian parents here, he's assuming that parents are only going to be asking for obedience in things that are moral, that are upright, that are in the Lord, as he makes clear in Ephesians 6.1. I don't know about you, but I think every parent ought to paste this verse on their child's bedroom wall, right? Children, obey your parents. I quoted Elizabeth Elliot just a moment ago, but it's some interesting, something she said. She said, it used to be that parents tried to raise their children to be good. But she said, in today's culture, they're trying to raise their children to be happy. She said, when parents tried to raise their children to be good, they usually ended up happy. But when they raise them just to be happy, they usually end up neither good nor happy. So my question would be, what are you raising your children to be? And again, I'm talking here to parents. I know. And I would say to any children listening to me right now, happiness is not a worthwhile goal. I know everything in your culture is going to tell you it is. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're trusting him as your Lord and Savior, holiness is the goal, not happiness. And if you pursue holiness, trust me on this, a great deal of happiness is going to show up on your doorstep, whether you were looking for it or not. Amen. That is the only goal worthy of your life. So be careful what you're pursuing. And I would say to you, if you're a young child in the home, still under your parents' protection and care, obey your parents in the Lord. Anything that's moral and legal and right, you obey your parents in the Lord. I think it's absolutely true that life works best when we do it according to the designer's design. And may God help us to have families Everybody, husbands, wives, children, are all flourishing as God intended. Lord, we're so grateful today for the challenge of your word. I know I'm speaking to people with all kinds of different experiences. Some are very jaded because of bad experiences they've had. Some of them have been hurt deeply by someone who kind of used the Bible as a club but didn't really live it. Others here are just confused because they hear so many different voices today from the culture and they don't really know 
what to believe. I pray that you would bring clarity by your spirit and your word. And Lord, I pray for many others here who have decided who their authority is. It's, it's your word, but they're just growing a little weary with it all. Or maybe life hasn't turned out exactly the way they planned. So they're in need of some encouragement today. So many marriages that need a shot of encouragement. So many individuals that just need to have their spirits lifted. I pray that today would be that day. And may many, may many step up and seek help because there's help to be had. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.